I got to warn you, I woke up at 2.30 and never got back to sleep, so there's a disclaimer with this message. Um, the sponsors are not responsible for anything that's said up here on the stage this morning, right? Uh, they don't claim ownership, but anyhow, hey, uh, welcome to week eight in our study of Matthew's gospel, the king and his kingdom. Our text today is Matthew chapter five, verses one through three. I'm going to read that and then pray us into our time of study. But first, a brief sidebar. Um, we're going to do some chanting, uh, our, our, our repeat backs. Okay, I'm going to say this, these, these phrases, and you repeat them back with power, and then we can move on or else we're here all day. Okay, I'm going to tell you what they are, and you're, I'm going to say God sees, and you'll say, God sees. I'll say, God cares. You say, God cares. I'll say, God's near. You'll say, God's near. And I'll say, God's able. And you'll say, God's able. And as we say this, I want you to think about maybe you have some challenges in your life. Or maybe you know someone who has challenges in your life. And think about that as we say this with power because it's true. Are you ready? ready. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I got one that's ready. All right. <laughs> I told you. Hey. <laughs> All right, all right, let me get my heart monitor to help me calm down. <laughs> all right, I got my heart, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not really, okay. Uh, I mean, really, I'm, I'm so sorry, babe. I'm not sorry. All right, okay, you ready? God sees. God, sees. God, cares. God cares. God's near. God's, near. God's, able. God's able. God sees. God sees. God cares. God cares. God's near. God's able. Amen. It's true, right? Now when the crowd saw, now when Jesus saw the crowds, and remember he's, he's teaching and preaching in Galilee, telling the people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And remember that's a, that's an invitation, not a threat. It's an invitation to a, a change of mind, a, a change in the way we think about things that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of life, the life we we're always created to live. And he's not only teaching and preaching, but he's healing every sickness and disease among the people. And so large crowds are following him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, bless it. Someone say bless it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your house. God, we thank you that we can come as we are, as broken vessels, Lord. We thank you that you, you see, you care, you're near, and you're able. And God, I, I pray for open hearts and open minds. I pray your spirit flows in a powerful way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you're able to speak through me today in a way that brings honor and glory to the Father and brings people closer to his throne. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2010, a multimillionaire from New Mexico named Forrest Fenn had this idea of getting America to turn off their TVs and stop playing video games and go on an adventure. So he took some of his treasure Gold coins, diamonds, emeralds, a million dollars plus of valuables and put them in a chest and hid the chest, sending them, sending America on the, to this treasure hunt. 
And he provided a poem that had nine clues. And you can go online and read this poem. And I read it. And like those clues mean absolutely nothing to me. And thousands of people went on this adventure using those nine clues as a, as a treasure map. Eleven years later, a 32-year-old medical student from Michigan finally found the treasure on July 2021 in Wyoming. And Finn died two months later in September at the age of 90. He has an autobiography called The Thrill of the Chase. And in it, he talks about how, how that the most valuable things, the most beautiful things are not easily found. That they're not just lying out there, that they're hidden. He says that you've got to search for them. You've got to go out and look for them. And as we come to this part of our study in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and especially the first 12 verses where we find what is known as the Beatitudes, we're going to go on kind of a treasure hunt. And we're going to find that in order for us to understand the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount for that matter, it's going to take some effort. Like we have to look for it, seek after it, pursue it. Which should not surprise us because Jesus said in Matthew 13, he said this about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then he, in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. Uh, Jesus says the kingdom is not only hidden, but the kingdom is valuable. Uh, that it's worth selling everything we have in order to possess it. And, and what is this kingdom that Jesus talks about? It is his church. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. And so Jesus is saying that, that, that his church, the church he established by his blood, is valuable. It, it is worth everything that we have. It's worth selling everything that we have. And listen, if you and I do not see the church as being that valuable, we do not see the church as Jesus sees the church. Amen? Again, the Bible describes the kingdom of heaven as a treasure that's hidden in the field. So we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount over the next however long it takes weeks, <laughs> beginning with the Beatitudes, which are kind of like eight clues that Jesus gives us to find the treasure of kingdom life. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5 or fire up your Bible app. Before we go there, I, I want to read just one more verse from Colossians. Colossians 3 verse 3 says this, it says, you died to this life and your real life it's hidden with Christ and God. Uh, Paul says that our real life is hidden with Christ and God. I understand there's a hidden nature to the life that God has planned for you and planned for me. And listen, here's what makes it hidden. It's the opposite of what many of us intuitively think it's going to be. Like where we assume we're going to find happiness, where we assume we're going to find real life, it's the opposite of some of our assumptions. Get it? Good. So there's sense that this real life in Christ is hidden. And, and listen, these eight clues that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes help reveal the real life, the kingdom life that God has for us. And the Beatitudes are an introduction to Jesus' longest sermon on record, the Sermon on the Mount. 
And, and here's some important information to keep in mind as we dive into this. Jesus was a rabbi. And in those days, every rabbi had a different interpretation and application of God's word. So a rabbi would say, hey, this is how I understand God's word, and this is how I apply God's word. This is how you should live God's word out. And so followers would say, hey, based upon what you say about God's word, I will choose to follow you or not follow you. Are you tracking with me? Do you know what the rabbi's interpretation and application was called? It was called the yoke of a rabbi. Now here's a picture of a yoke. So you see, in the first century... The idea was that the, a rabbi's teaching was like the yolk of an egg. And if you could crack that shell, you would get to the yolk and thereby uncover his teaching. I'll just make that up, right? <laughs> that has nothing to do with that. that this is what it's talking about. It talks about a yolk, right? All right. It, it's something you put, a wooden harness you put over animals to direct where they're to go. It guides and directs the direction they should go. And so a rabbi would say, hey, here's my yoke. Here's my understanding and application of God's word. And the followers would say, okay, I'm going to put that on. I'm going to allow that to control and direct and guide my life. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, okay, people of God, okay, people seeking God, here's my yoke. Here's my understanding and application of God's word. Here's what should guide and direct your life. And listen, one thing that's obvious right out of the gates is that Jesus' yoke is much different than what the people have ever heard before. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what they would expect. And listen, opposite things can be very disconcerting at first, right? You remember the first time you tried to drive in reverse, right? Some of you are still, still learning. I'm still learning, right? Gentile gets his new cart, right? And, and uh, I'm backing out my driveway in the dark. I decide not to look behind me, and I hear a boom. Oh, no. <laughs> Hit my neighbor's truck, and I'm thinking, got to put a note on here, right? You know, I'm a Christian, right? I can't just drive away. Plus, they may have a, one of those bell, one of those door things that sees me anyhow, and they're going to find me, so I might as well be honest, right? You know, and, and uh, the first person to wreck my son's car is his dad, Right? And so, but, but it's kind of difficult, right, to drive in reverse. It's opposite of what you maybe would think. And the, the word counterintuitive could be defined as doing something that on the surface doesn't seem to make sense, but it's what works. And that's the hidden nature of the teaching of Jesus. So much of it is counterintuitive. It, it doesn't make sense. But in fact, it's what works. It, it's the yoke that leads to real life, that leads to kingdom life, even though it seems opposite or upside down. Now, a guy named Leonard Sweet wrote a book called Jesus Drives Me Crazy. It's a great book. In it, he has a chapter called Nuts Wisdom. Here's what he writes. Everything that Jesus taught goes against how normal people see and function in the world. You see, turning the other cheek, going the second mile, giving the spare coat, washing someone's feet, heaping blessings on those who curse you, selling your possessions, and giving them to the church, living without anger, Laying down your life, all these things, normal people have a hard time understanding, much less thinking and living. The truth is, Jesus stood normal wisdom on its head. He writes, Christianity invites us to live an intuitively counterintuitive life. The lifted up one, the one who sits high and walks low, taught that the thoroughfare to God is full of bypass and back roads. Jesus taught that the way up is down, the way in is out. 
The way first is last. The way of success is service. The way of attainment is relinquishment. He taught the way of strength is weakness. The way of security is vulnerability. The, the way of protection is forgiveness, even the 70 times 7. He taught that the way of life is death, death to self, death to society, death to family. Know your strengths? Why? That's the only way that you can lay them down. God's power is made perfect where? In our weakness. Uh, want to get the most out of life? Go to where the least are. You want to be free? Give complete control to God. Want to become great? Become the least. Want to find yourself? Forget yourself. Want to get even with your enemies? Bless, love, and pray for them. He concludes, and for Jesus, it wasn't enough to turn the other cheek. One had to turn the hands and feet as well in doing good to that person. To a world obsessed with power, the gospel is nuts. To a world obsessed with success, Jesus' teaching is nuts. That was some sweet teaching by Leonard Sweet. And so Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with eight Beatitudes. And each one begins with the word, bless it. So he says, do you want to bless life? And everyone says, yes, we want to bless life. We want to be happy. And Jesus says, bless are you who? And he, you who? <laughs> That's like a drink, right? Sorry. Uh, blessed are you who? <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's so inappropriate for, for me as a professional speaker. But that's funny. I, can, I don't think I could ever say that again without thinking of that. You. <laughs> okay. But, wow. He gives eight characteristics of a life that is blessed. And maybe your version says, blessed is, or rather, happy is the one who, happy is an okay word. In fact, that might be the best standalone word to translate the word blessed. But it's too small of a word. Happy doesn't capture it. And I think to understand what Jesus is talking about, what he means by a blessed life is a look at John chapter 10, verse 10. Where Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the what? Have it to the, okay, two people want to go home early. Have it to the, now y'all want to go home early. Thank you. All right. And, and here's how I want to define a blessed life for the purposes of this study. A blessed life equals living with a God-given Living with a God-given joyfulness and satisfaction regardless of outward circumstances. And that's huge for us, right? Because we're all about a blessed life. We're all about joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. In fact, at the birth of our country, we declared it, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness. And listen, most of us would say that the pursuit of happiness is about an outward condition. That if we could change our situation, if we could change our circumstances, maybe if we could change the people in our circumstances, then we'd be happy. Then we could be blessed. But Maple Grove, Jesus is going to teach us that a blessed life is, first of all, God-given. It's not something we pursue. It's something that God gives to us and it's not dependent upon our circumstances, our conditions, our situations, or other people. A blessed life supersedes all of that. Does anybody in this room want to live a blessed life? I do. I mean, supersize it, right? Or a five guy fries it, right? Isn't that crazy? Like, you get a fry, they just dump like three pounds of potatoes in your bag, right? All right. 
And so in this open salvo of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to teach us what it means to be blessed. And what we're going to discover is that it's different than we might assume. Here we go. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. Kind of a head-scratcher, right? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I win, right? I'm broke. But we're like, maybe Jesus was nervous, right? And kind of misspoke here. Blessed are the poor. I mean, surely he meant to say blessed are the, the rich, right? Because that's how the equation works for us. We equate a blessed life with being rich. I mean, we even use the word interchangeably. Like you go to a rich person's house and you say, man, this is a beautiful home. What an incredible car. And what do they say? They don't, do they say, thanks, I'm so rich. No, thanks, I'm so rich. They say, I'm so blessed. Because we equate being blessed with God with being rich. In fact, there are many false prophets out and about, right? They're everywhere. They're on television. They have podcasts, write books, have whole conferences, fill up large buildings, telling everybody that God wants people to be rich. Here's a quote from one of their most favorite prophets. I will not name him because he's had enough airtime already. Um, he says, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he laid out for us. And obviously the destiny God has laid out for every Christian is to be rich and wealthy, right? Needless to say, this guy is not booking any conference centers in Ukraine right now, right? You know, if your message cannot be preached to the poor and the needy and the persecuted refugee, then guess what? That's not God's message. God did not say that. That's not the plan God laid out for us to be materially rich. Amen? That's just nonsense. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth as he kicks off this powerful declaration of what it means to live in his kingdom is blessed are the poor. And he's talking more than just monetary possessions. He says, you know, poor in spirit. The word for poor used here, it means destitute. It means bankrupt. It means, it, it, it means reduced to begging, helpless, powerless. And so when I'm destitute and bankrupt in spirit, that's when I'm blessed. But what does that even mean, right? Like, and, and we should try to want to figure this out because Jesus says it's one of the keys to living a blessed life. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And, and I want to try to unpack that at least a little in our time remaining. And first, being poor in spirit means embracing your brokenness. Someone says, someone says, Simon says, Stephen says, who says? You say, I say, you who? <laughs> This is good. I am crushing this. No, you're not. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I think someone's calling you out there, sister. Hey, hey. I was planning to do this anyhow, even though you may not think so. This is time I want you to get up and say hi to everybody around you, right? Take two minutes to greet those around you. Seriously. Okay, awesome. Awesome. A lot of energy in the room today. I love it. Uh, being poor in spirit means that you have reached a point where you realize you're broke, that you're spiritually bankrupt. It's acknowledging that you cannot pay the bill, you can't dig yourself out of the hole, 
You can't take care of yourself. You can't fix a problem. You can't redeem the situation. You can't put the pieces back together again. You can't turn things around. You can't get past it. And you declare bankruptcy. And Jesus says, in that moment, you're blessed. Blessed are you when you declare your spiritual bankruptcy. Now, Tim, Timothy Keller, an author and pastor, offers the following definition of what Jesus meant by poor in spirit. He says, it means seeing that you're deeply in debt before God. Question, is that how you see yourself this morning? And you have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you at infinite cost to him is your only hope. But he says, that's hard for us today. As Americans, this is really difficult for us to do. And he explains it this way. He says, on the contrary, most of us, you believe that God owes you something, that he ought to answer your prayers and to bless you for the many good things you have done. We can say that you are middle class, middle class, not poor in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. You also believe that the success and resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. I think you really nailed it. We, we, are, we are middle class in spirit, right? Uh, we're not some homeless beggar spiritually on the street corner. We are middle class in spirit. And listen, this belief, this yoke, this mindset that you worked hard and God owes you something for your hard work and that the good things that you have in your life, the positive things that you have are there because of your own resourcefulness and your own energy and industry. And listen, that, that spirit is exactly what keeps so many of us from experiencing God's blessing in our lives. Uh, because we approach him like we approach most everybody else as if we have something to offer. Yeah, we try to bribe God with things that are already his. We say, God, look at what I have done. Look at what I've accomplished. You owe me. But here's the deal. It's not until we admit our bankruptcy that we can truly be blessed by God. Jesus says, blessed are those who admit their poverty. And that's hard for us because we're all about maintaining the image. We're about looking like we have it together. However, someone who is poor in spirit acknowledges that they don't, that they don't have it together. This past Thursday, I was at a lunch with four other pastors. We were talking about this very thing. How though church is supposed to be a safe place where people can be honest about their brokenness, it is very often a place where people work the hardest to try to hide that brokenness. I mean, we could be like, you know, the person who's about to declare bankruptcy, but they're driving around in a brand new car because they're trying to keep up the facade as long as possible, and we can do this spiritually. And listen, that's where Facebook or facade book comes in handy, right? Look at how happy my family is. Look how great my marriage is, how successful my kids are, how great I'm doing at my job. But after we snap the picture and after we make the post, everything is falling apart all around us. For years and years, we just, we don't acknowledge our mess. We don't acknowledge our brokenness. Like we don't want anyone to look inside or to look in the windows. We don't want them, we don't want anyone to say that, we don't want to say that we're broken, that things aren't going well. But Jesus says you're blessed when you get to that point. 
Because when you realize that the truth about yourself, about your situation, you'll be poor in spirit, and then you open the door to God's blessings in your life. It's like a child who finally comes to their mom or dad without making demands, without making excuses, without making justifications, says, Mom and Dad, will you help me? Jesus says at that point, you can be blessed. But to get there, you got to reach the point where you say, I can't fix it. I can't repair it. I can't restore it. I can't rebuild it. I can't patch this thing up on my own. So being poor in spirit is reaching a point where you embrace your own brokenness. Uh, a while back, I was reflecting on my brokenness and sending a text to some bros in Christ about that brokenness. And, and when I typed the word brokenness, it autocorrect to broken mess. I said, how do they know me so well? I am a broken mess. I am. Listen, I get it. I feel you. I, I would like to be made whole without being or acknowledging my brokenness. But it does not, at least according to our rabbi, work that way. Get it? Good. Now here's the second thing. Poor spirit means asking for help. Sounds simple, right? You just, you just ask for help. But that can be one of the hardest things for us to do. Most of us are not good at asking for help because to ask for help means that we can't help ourselves. That we can't do it on our own. And that goes against how many of us have been taught to believe or to pretend. Do you know that self-help movement is a $10 billion business and there are 45,000 self-help books out there? Why are we so into this self-help thing? $10 billion, 45,000 books? Why? You know, I have five children. I can tell you that it was not long before they learned these five words. I can do it myself. <laughs> no, you can't. I can do it myself. Me do, me do. And they try to do things. And you're like, you have no idea. You can't do it yourself. See, there's something within us that just wants to do it ourselves. Hey, I got myself into this mess. <laughs> I'll get myself out of this mess. I can do it myself. We look at Jesus and say, me do, me do. <laughs> Because, look, there, there are no awards at sports banquets for being poor in spirit, right? No awards for saying, I can't do it, I need help. We don't celebrate that in our culture. Like, nobody puts in a resume, I don't know what to do here, but I sure could use help. <laughs> we don't celebrate poor in spirit, we celebrate the self-reliant in spirit. We celebrate those who help themselves. But Jesus said, if you want to be blessed, you must be poor in spirit. You must get to the point where you recognize your poverty and say, God, I need your help. Listen, here's the deal. Jesus says that's the point where we're blessed. When we finally say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't mend and heal my marriage. I can't fix my kids. I can't stay sober. I can't control my temper. I can't restrain my lust. I can't figure this thing out. I can't make it work. I, I can't get past that hurt. I can't save myself. I can't move that mountain. I can't part that sea. I can't slay that giant. I can't put the pieces back together again. God, I can't. Please help me. 
I can. Now the message paraphrase puts it this way in Matthew 5.3. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, someone say less of you. There's more of God in his rule. And most of us would think that's not a good thing, that it's not a good thing to get to the end of your rope, to find yourself in a situation where everything has fallen apart and the pieces are pretty much all broken all around you. But Jesus says when you get to that point, you're blessed because you realize you're bankrupt and you finally make room for God's hand to move in your life. But again, that's difficult. I think one of the reasons is because we have put on some false or, or faulty yokes. Like I was reading the survey, they were asking people, hey, what are some of your favorite Bible verses? And one of the most common verses quoted was this verse. You might know it. The Lord helps those who help themselves, but it's not in the Bible. It's just not there. But 81% of Christians in a Barner survey said it was. It's a false yoke. Here's another one that really irritates me. People say, well, God won't put anything more on than you can handle. That's a load of, you know what? Right? That's not in the Bible. I mean, Paul, in his letter to Corinthians, was a point, hey, God, he said, guess what? I am more than I can handle. I'm overwhelmed. I think I may die. I think I may not make it through it. Right? Or we'll put it more in your handle. Then people believe, I think, gosh, I must be weak Christian because I can't handle this. I can't handle all the stress. I can't handle all the brokenness. I can't handle all the hopelessness. It's a false yoke. The Bible teaches the opposite. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's who God helps. He helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who ask for help. But it's just kind of how we are. We want to say, hey, I got it, God. I mean, we want to rewrite one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 121. We want to rewrite it. You know, that Psalm, it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We want to rewrite that. Where we're saying, basically, where does my help come from? Right? My help comes from me. <laughs> my help comes from me. And I, I, I changed it a little bit the maker of most of the messes in my life, right? I don't know about you, but I, I would think, I don't know, call me crazy, you know? You know? I think the maker of heaven and earth helping me compared to me helping me is a no-brainer, don't you? It, it seems like a no-brainer. It should be a no-brainer. If you study the ministry of Jesus, he helped people who asked for help. <laughs> So a woman comes to Jesus whose body won't stop bleeding. It's been 12 years. And some of you can relate because what's broken in your life has gone on for years. She spent all her money on doctors. She's severely anemic. She's wasting away. She's at the end of her rope. And she reaches out in desperation to Jesus and she's blessed. And he heals her. He helps those who ask for help. Like this intern whose servant was ill. He knew he didn't deserve Jesus to come to even visit his house, but he was desperate. He was at the end of his rope. So the Bible says he came and asked Jesus for help, and he was blessed, and his servant was healed. And there's this Canaanite woman. She's a Gentile. I mean, no one would help her. She was considered an outcast, but her daughter was suffering terrible. Her daughter was demon-possessed. We may say that when her kids are acting up, but we're talking she was really demon-possessed. Could you imagine having your child possessed by a demon? 
No one would help her. She was desperate. She was at the end of her rope, and she finally cries out in her brokenness to Jesus, Lord, help me, and she is blessed. And Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Matthew 15, 28. And then there's a blind guy in Luke 18. He's begging on the roadside. We can picture that. We see that in our community, right? Maybe not blind, but begging. He hears Jesus is passing by. He starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd tries to shut him up. But he keeps crying out, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. He's at the end of his rope. And Jesus stopped. And he asked this guy a question. I think he wants to ask someone in this room. Or watching online. I see you there. What do you want me to do for you? You know what he said? Jesus, help. I want to see. And he went home that day seeing. You see, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who embrace their brokenness and ask for help. Get it? Good. I hope we do. Hope I do. Hope you do. Hope we get it. Psalm 107, a psalm of powerful praises for the God who helps. Check this out. It's so good. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His faithless love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Some wandering in the wilderness, lost and helpless, hungry and thirsty. You ever been there? Here's this next line. Okay. You have a line. Whenever you see this, you got to follow along with me, right? I'm not going to do the finger thing. You can, you can follow along. You're going to say, Lord, help. Like you mean it. They nearly died. Seriously? Do you want help or not? Uh, I mean, if you, I'm not even coming for that. They nearly died. They cried in their trouble and he rescued them from their distress. Some sat in darkness and deepest gloom, imprisoned in iron chains of misery. They cried in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Some went off the sea in ships, and their ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They cried in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Check this out. And he calmed the storm to a whisper. And he stilled the waves. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. He calms the storm. He stills the waves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is how Jesus begins his sermon that is a powerful declaration of what living in his kingdom is all about. Blessed are those who are at the end of the ropes. Blessed are those who embrace their brokenness and ask God for help. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because that is where real life, kingdom life begins. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because even though they're in deep trouble and distress, even though they can't, they know that God can. Amen? Amen. I, I want you, we're getting close to being done. I haven't even used all my time, which is pretty 
ridiculous, right, for me. But uh, I, I want you to think, and I'm assuming there could be one or two people kind of in distress, in trouble, difficult times, and, and something's just too big for you. You can't do it. And I want you to think of when your life is broken, and I'm going to say, you can't. And you're going to respond, but God can. You ready? You can't. God can. You can't. God can. You can't. God can. You can't. Amen? It's true. I'm not making this stuff up. And, and here's how I want to end our time together is, have you ever noticed that one of the images in our culture that is used for asking for help is ringing a bell? If you're going to a store during the holidays, you'll see maybe a guy from the Salvation Army ringing a bell saying, what? We need your help. Sometimes if you go to a hotel, you know, and the person's not there, you go to a store, the person's not there, but on the counter they have that little bell and that bell is free. Ring the bell if you need help. Now some of you don't do that, right? Because you're like, oh, I don't want to appear like I'm high maintenance or needy, right? You just stare at the bell. Some of you are like, right? You just go crazy on that bell. How do you know? Get in now. Why aren't you here, right? <laughs> Which are you, right? Stare at the bell or kill the bell? I remember when I was a kid being like really sick and my mom would give me a bell to ring and I'd ring that bell and she would come help me out. Yeah, this bell here is actually, I think it's a couple hundred, it's over a hundred years old and it's a bell that I gave my older kids, right? It's before phones and texts, now they can text us. I need help and here's what I need, right? Yeah, back then you just ring this, right? And you hear that bell, and you would come running because you know that someone needed help. Jesus says in Mark 2.17, he says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, those who think they are healthy, but those who know they're sinners, those who know they're sick, those who know they're broken, those who know they're a broken mess. And listen, the point is this. If you want... What Jesus has for you, you've got to be sick, and we're all sick. Some of us think we're well. We think we're healthy, so we don't ask for help. We don't ring the bell. And, and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to have a time of worship, and I, I have every counter up here as well, I have a bell. And we're going to sing a song called Run to the Father. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to ring the bell. And kind of what I, I'm wanting you to do is, is to, you walk up to this bell and you're thinking of, I need help with, and you say it, ring the bell. God, I need help with my anger. God, I need help in my marriage. God, I need help with my kids. I need help with my bitterness. I need help with straining my lust. I need help. And you think, Say to yourself, to God, just, God, I need help with this. I need help with my fear. I need help with my doubts. I need help with my insecurity. I need help with this difficult time. And listen, there is real power getting up and doing that. And some of you have some hurt and you're thinking, 
I don't need to ring no silly bell, right? What's ringing some silly bell have to do with asking God for help? You're thinking that. Don't let the enemy win. You know, you're in a room full of broken people. And I guarantee you, if you walk up as we're singing a song, run to the Father, and you walk up and you say in your heart to God that there's something broken, that you need help getting back together again, and you ring that bell, something will happen. The Holy Spirit will move in your heart and your life, and things will happen. Now, I'm not saying everything goes away because you do that. It may take a while, but God wants to help you. God sees, God cares, God's near, and God's able to help you and to help me with our brokenness. Amen? So would you all stand? And again, as we're singing this song, just walk up whenever you're ready. You don't have to, but I'd encourage you. The only reason I could think you wouldn't do it if you're broken is because the devil's lying to you not to do it, right? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for loving us as broken people. And God, thank you that we can be honest with you. We don't have to pretend with you. And kind of crazy to pretend we're not broken when we stand before the one who sees us better than we see ourselves. And God, I pray that right now, I pray for all of us, God. I pray for those who've been carrying a burden for far too long. That they'll just reach out to you and say, God, I need your help. God, thank you for being a God who sees, who cares, and who's able to help. In Jesus' name, amen.